All right, what's up, guys? Live for the 83rd installment of the Playing Wood podcast series. Dan Mar- Dan Martell is my guest today. What's up, my man? Dude, I'm uh, pumped to be here. I'm excited. This is, uh, from what I've seen of your audience online, I'm excited to chat with them. I think uh, I we're going to have a lot of fun. I have a very interesting audience. I think you're going to like this one. Um, yeah. A lot of people want to hear from you, too, because... Um, for years, people ask me about time management, entrepreneurship, and it's something that I lean into and I deal with a bit on my channel, but uh, I think uh, this is something these, these guys are really going to enjoy. I just finished reading your book, um, Buy Back Your Time. It was, dude, it was all over my social media for months. I was traveling. I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to download his book and listen to it. It's, it's got to be good. It's Dan. So great book. I sent you a DM on Facebook and you said, let's do a podcast. So here we are today. Why did you write this book? Let's let's just start with that. Simple, man. It's uh, It was the number one thing that I could create to serve the most people that I love in my life that would buy me the most time back. Thing, I mean, like literally the one thing that I get asked all the time from all of my friends, it doesn't matter if it's like somebody that's got a, you know, solopreneur, creator, podcaster to my nine figure friends, um, is how do you do what you do? Like they see the life I live with, you know, just the multiple, like, cause I, I run two eight figure companies, hundred million dollar fund. I invest in SaaS companies. I run the largest SaaS software as a service, uh, coaching group for CEOs. So I work with all the top guys and I also train for Ironmans and travel the world two and two and a half months a year with my family and don't do anything in my house that doesn't require my unique ability, which is pretty much nothing. So it's, it's, I don't know, man. I just, I kept like piecemealing it out to people and they would like get parts of it and miss other parts. And, you know, I had a friend Ron reach out to me three years ago and just say like, you need a book. And I'm like, I don't need a book. Like I'm good. My life's great. I don't, you know, he's like, you know, I was doing a lot of stuff on, on YouTube and social. So I didn't, I didn't have a feel for a need, but Mm. he convinced me that it would serve people in a completely different way. And since it's been released, holy moly, did I underestimate the value of a book by like 10x easily wouldn't I, I was an idiot like that. I will just say that. Um, I want to get into your like Batman origin story, the whole running from the cops, pulling the gun, it, it, it getting stuck because that because that kind of sets the tone for a lot of guys. Can you can you kick off with that story? Yeah, man. I mean, I grew up in Eastern Canada in a small town called Moncton, New Brunswick. And the way I explain it to friends, because people see me today and they don't get it. They're like, I don't like, I hear these stories. You know, I've seen you share that story, but it's like meeting you. doesn't make sense. Like I've met your family. I've met your brothers and sisters. And it was, it was kind of like this. I mean, I grew up second of four in the family. So I'm the second oldest, my sister's older. And I didn't know it at the time. And we lived in this neighborhood, you know, 20 minutes outside of town, you know, but it was a normal neighborhood, like very white collar. My dad was an electrical engineer, eventually got into sales. But what happened was I got I, it, diagnosed with ADHD at 11, um, which was really a moment in my life. Cause like all of a sudden I started feeling like I was broken because they put me on Ritalin and I'd have to see a therapist and all this crazy stuff. And I had anger issues and like my home life was, you know, and I didn't know this at the time because I was only 11, but you know, my mom was, was an alcoholic, you know, but not like, um, 
she's, she's just distance. And I mean, she struggled with it her whole life. That's why my parents actually got divorced when I was 13. And, and what happened for me when I ended up in high school is I discovered drugs and I just went full on like, you know, sons of anarchy style, like started spending time with guys in the hell's angels, um, people twice my age, you know, getting myself into situations where I was transporting stuff. I shouldn't have been growing weed. I mean, break it and then just crime. I mean, everything from, you know, shoplifting, I got put on probation. I ended up in jail the first time for selling drugs to the daughter of a cop at 15, 14, 15. I mean, just, just stupid stuff that I think a lot of people, I talked to friends and they're like, Oh, I went through that, but I just didn't get caught. And I'm like, yeah, I always got caught. That was like just the certain thing. And what happened is uh, I ended up in juvenile detention the first time when I was 15 for the summer, I went for seven weeks. I get out. I tell myself, you know, this is done. I'm changing my life. You know, I'm not going to hang out with those people. And I last like 16 hours. Like I got out in the morning and by that night I was, I was drunk partying at a place I shouldn't have been at. And, and that's, that's kind of like when things, cause like once you have some space to look at life, if you ever have an addiction and you get sober for a bit, if you relapse, it's actually like worse because now you feel super guilty. Right. And um, and that's what happened to me the year after that, I just spiraled like crazy out of control and got to a place where my brother called me one day and said, you can't come home because the police are waiting for you. And, you know, drives, he would have been 15. I think he had like his, uh, his like 50 CC motorbike license and like drove to meet me at this abandoned, uh, concrete building. And he gave me like 63 bucks and said, you got to get out of here. And I decided to steal a car. I had, uh, uh, a handgun that I had gotten from a break and enter I did and a backpack. And I took this car and I decided to head to Montreal. My uncle lived there and he was, he was actually in the the mafia. And, you know, he, he always said like, if you ever need to get away, just come see me. And I, it was the only person I thought that maybe I could, you know, go get some, some, you know, support from. And, um, on my way from New Brunswick to Montreal, I take this exit, um, high and drunk driving this car and uh, to get some gas and there's a routine roadblock and I pull up and I'm like okay it's going down because before I took the car I told myself if the cops stop me I'm just gonna pull the gun and let them do their job and take my life and mm. you know I lied to them said it was my mom's car and I didn't have my driver's license on me they asked me to pull over and I just took off and um, it felt like it lasted like 10 minutes probably lasted like freaking three minutes but I ended up getting ahead of them in this like neighborhood and I saw an open garage door and I thought, you know, maybe I could like hide in this garage and then sneak out the back and run into the woods. And I came into the driveway carrying way too much speed and just smashed right in the front of the car, just smashed into the corner of the garage door. And I wasn't wearing a seatbelt and just hit friggin', you know, everything goes off the, the airbags go off. And, you know, as soon as I kind of realized what happened, I grabbed, I went for the gun and whatever reason as i was pulling on it, it got stuck between the seat and the bag and i kept pulling on it and pulling i could hear the cops get close and they literally charged the car opened the door didn't even like i don't because like i watch car movies now they wouldn't do that i don't know why maybe they knew that i was a kid and they just like opened the door and grabbed me and like this is in sussex new brunswick this small town of like eight thousand people you know they've probably never seen that kind of thing happen in a while and they just essentially carried me across the lawn and threw me in the back of the car. And, um, I woke up sober the next morning wondering what my life was going to look like. And 
I didn't believe in God at the time. I didn't believe in a higher power, but I just kind of said, you know, if anybody's looking out, I would, you know, if you help me get through this, I'll, I'll commit to just being good. There was no big plan. There was no like, Oh, be the best. No, there was zero. It was just like, and I ended up, um, getting released to, or getting, uh, put away for about a year and a half, almost two years. So I, I got, because of the severity of my crime, I ended up in a place called St. John Regional Correctional Center. And it was an adult prison with uh, these two juvenile blocks. So there was cell block style prison. And um, I was there for a few months and I tried to stay out of the kind of the politics. When you're, when you're in that kind of environment, there's a lot of things that'll pull you down. And I remember one day we were having breakfast We'd always, they'd let us out of our cells and eat as a group. And, um, there was this kid, Kurt, who, uh, I don't know, like growing up, there was always these like handful of people that were like built like a muscle. I don't know. Kurt had like an eight pack, you know, like he was 14, but you know, he had like a little mustache. Right. And, um, he was one of the aggressors and he just went for the coffee and it was empty. Cause I just finished it. And he just looks around the table and goes, who's the goof that drank the last of the coffee and put my hand up fight goes off. I get, I get grabbed out of the, the cell block thrown in the hole. And it's probably the most degrading thing you can do to another human is put them in a, in a, you know, I don't know, six by eight room in your underwear, you know, on a steel, literally it's a steel or a, a cement block. And I'm staring at the friggin' for three days. They don't give you anything. They feed you and that's it. They let you out for 30 minutes in this, like, caged in area with like essentially four walls with a with a a roof that's just a cage like the like a fence and you're staring at like for me the steel toilet and sink it's like this combo unit and i just sat there until on the third day you know i didn't know how i was gonna be there the uh, door opens in this guard named brian and um he asked me to follow him and, and brian was one of those like cool guards like the people that if you listen to him, he would look the other way. If you wanted like a second dessert or, you know, if he knew you were like, you know, collecting other people's peanut butter, I mean, simple stuff in prison, man. It's just, you know, that kind of stuff. And, um, he asked me to follow him. And as we're going down the hallway, we passed the cell block door, which I'd never been passed. Essentially when you leave your cell block, it's orderly fashion. You go to the gym, you come back, there's no messing around. And he walks me past there into the door after, which is the, the guard unit. And, um, the one thing is nobody's allowed in the guard unit, no matter what. And he asked me to follow him in there. And I was like, Oh shit, you know, what did I do? And he sits me in the corner and sits me down, grabs a chair, sits in front of me and just looks at me and he goes, what are you doing here? And I was like, well, I, what do you mean? He's like, I was like, I got in a fight with Kurt. He's like, no, no, no. He goes, not that. He goes, what are you doing in this place? What are you doing in jail? And I go, you know, high speed chase, had a gun, other crimes history. He's like, he goes, not that man. He goes, Dan, I've been following you and, and like watching the way you act like you don't belong here. And, um, I don't know if that was the first time anybody ever told me that, but it was the first time I ever heard it. And he just said, like, if you haven't realized, like, it doesn't make sense to me that you're in this place. And that was like this moment where I was like, well, if Brian sees this and he's been working here for like a decade, maybe there's truth in this. Maybe he sees something in me that I never saw myself. And it was just like something, something flipped inside this, this belief in me that I never had. And 
that point after I just like worked really hard to just stay out of it. Right. Like I knew where I shouldn't be and all this stuff. And a few months later I got released to this rehab center that literally saved my life. I mean, it, uh, I spent 11 months in this place where I finished out the rest of my sentence and I learned about my feelings and my anger and I rebuilt the relationship with my family and, um, really got to know what made me tick which as a 16, 17 year old, it was the biggest gift in the world. I mean, today I wouldn't be who I am if it wasn't for that place. And um, towards the end of my program, I was helping Rick, the maintenance guy, clear out one of the, the old cabins because it was built on a church camp. And in one of the rooms, there was this old computer with a yellow book on Java programming sitting next to it. And for whatever reason, it spoke to me. And I'd never touched a computer my whole life. We didn't have a computer. And uh, this is 1997. And I boot this thing up and I follow the first you know, chapter of this book and I get the computer to spit out hello world, which is, I thought I was a genius. And I was like, holy shit, you know? And it turned out I, I wasn't, but it didn't matter. It literally, there was something in that moment where I just thought, okay, maybe my brain's wired differently. And I went down this obsessive path of literally becoming addicted to writing code and creating software products. And then eventually I discovered this, little thing called the internet, right? It's 97. And mm. what happened was, is like that became the, that filled the hole that was left through my addiction when I got out and I would stay up till three, four in the morning, just writing code and then eventually starting businesses and products. And, and then entrepreneurship is just, has been the ultimate personal development program for me. And it's, it's why I'm here, man. Like rich, I'm, I, you know, some people are like, what did you figure out? You went to rehab, and you didn't relapse and you created this life, what did you figure out? And I don't know if I have an answer to that. I don't know. And I wish I did because man, I've had so many people I've seen along the way. They're not alive anymore, man. They didn't make it, you know, mm -hmm. or they ended up in prison for the rest of their lives. And I'm just grateful that I had these people and moments that showed up when I needed the most. And for whatever reason, the, the story I told myself allowed me to connect to it and latch onto it and use it as a, an opportunity to be better and not use as an excuse to be shitty. And that's, mm. that's why I've, I think I wake up every day, not looking to waste a second. It's why I wrote this. This book is just who I am. I mean, I've just from 17, I didn't take a day for granted. I've like, just cause of what I went through, I, I appreciate the fact that I'm breathing today, that I'm not locked up in prison, that I'm not being friggin' body search, you know, cavity search. I mean, it's just the shit I went through is just not, not, not something I wish on anybody. And that just led to this crazy amount of gratitude I have for living life. Have you ever had a, a job, like a salaried employee or have you always worked for yourself? I've never had like an official job with any. Okay. So I've worked, I worked with my dad part-time doing construction stuff. So like building decks, ripping roofs off of, you know, his rental properties or his cottages he'd buy or like my neighbor, <laughs> my neighbor would hire us but we'd get dude we get in trouble every time like if you met we, we had this neighbor sheriff he he was a guy that lived next to my dad's cottage and like he hired us for a day and by the afternoon the cops show up with me because i was taking his truck to go empty out all the the rubbish that we were pulling out of this old cottage but i was 15 i didn't even have my license but i told mm. the sheriff i did so like i don't stop at a stop sign i get pulled over i'm 15 like just the stuff we would do is hilarious. I mean, so yeah, no, I've never had like a, a normal job. I would do enough to make money to probably go party with my friends. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, I've always just been a builder, a creator. 
Is there is there a, a, a common code, a fabric of DNA, some sort of commonality that you see with guys that do well as entrepreneurs? Yeah, they they understand how to deal with the large amount of chaos and uncertainty. I mean, that that is it. Dude, that's you. That's everybody. That's every entrepreneur. When I go speak to entrepreneurs early in my career, I would, I would do this, right? Especially the software folks that I'd speak and like, nobody wanted to talk about it, but I knew it was just such a part of who they were. So I would ask everybody to close their eyes and I'd say, raise your hand. If you've gone through some kind of adversity or chaos between the ages of seven and 12 and 90% of the room would raise their hands. And I'd tell everybody, okay, put your hands down, open your eyes. And I go, you are my people. Like, here's what I know is because you went through that, that essentially qualifies you to be somebody that can succeed in this crazy world of, of entrepreneurship. And the reason why is because there is zero certainty, zero structure, zero anything. You literally have to learn how to be the person who can create this stuff. And guess what? If you don't figure it out, you're going you're gonna to stumble for the rest of your life. And if you figure out a little bit, you'll make a little bit of money. But if you don't do the work, you're going to give it all back. Like I've just, you know, there's levels to this game, but it's why those people even, I mean, it's kind of a crazy proposition, Rich. It's like to believe that you can go create something from nothing and be a thousand percent accountable for your life. Most people can't even be accountable for anything. They don't want that level of responsibility. They want to blame their kids and their neighbor and their government and the, and all these people around them for the way they are. And entrepreneurs say, no, I do not want to give those people my power. I'm going to be hundred percent accountable for this. And I'm going to mold and create this. And I believe, I don't know if it's just my hallucination, that they also know that they need to work on themselves to become the person who can create and maintain it, right? Like Jim mm -hmm. Rohn said this a long time ago. He said, uh, you know, uh, if somebody ever gave you a millionaire, you better hope that you become a million or if somebody ever gives you a million dollars, you better hope to become a millionaire really fast. Cause if not, you're going to lose it all. Mm -hmm. Right. Because having a million dollars does not make you a millionaire. And you see mm -hmm. this all the time with professional athletes and people win the lottery. And it's just funny. Like some people, they say to me, it's like, my goal is to be worth a hundred million. I go, Dude, if you were worth hundred million in the next six months, you would just lose it all because you have not become the person who can, like the the financial complexity of that, right? Like people don't get it. They think I want this life. It's like you couldn't handle that life. You can't even handle a ten dollar overage on your cell phone bill, and you think you can handle that? You you've got some work to do. And that's mm. that's the part that I find fascinating is that I think entrepreneurship is the best place to attract that kind of person and create the space for them if they're willing to use that friction to grow to to be a feedback loop for that i get people that ask me often what do you think you know important skills are to have to be successful as an entrepreneur and i've always gone back to being a really really good problem solver you have to be able to solve problems what is it for yeah. you resourcefulness creative I, I i just i have i have zero um zero connection with people that say like, I need money to make money or I need this to do this, or I need that. It's like, no, you need to go figure out how to be resourceful. Right. And you mm -hmm. call them problems. I like the word puzzle. I think puzzle is a cool word. If you can get rid of your word problem and replace it with a puzzle, your life will be dramatically better. If you just think mm -hmm. about like, Hey, I'm dealing with this person and they created a real puzzle in my life. 
then people around you are like, hey, I like puzzles. How do we solve this? It's, it's fascinating how words really set frames for forward motion or activity or action. So mm. to me, I think being resourceful is the underlying um, skill that allows people to solve puzzles, right? And resourceful is fun because it's saying with the constraint of not having all of the resources in the world, I need to be creative, right? And this is why like sometimes, you know, so I buy companies and I have CEOs report to me and I always pull the extra cash out of the business. And they, and I remember one CEO I hired is like, why do you do that? It makes it really hard for me to grow the business. I go, because if I left it there, you would spend it and mm -hmm. no innovation is going to come from it. If you have an abundance of cash. Okay. Your mm -hmm. innovation, your creativity, your resourcefulness is a muscle and it will only be developed. If I put you in a position where you have to create with less resources than you think you have. And that is true for you. And it's true for your whole team. So I'm actually doing you a service by not giving you that capital to redeploy. Now, if you can present me with an opportunity that makes sense and argue for it, you have unlimited funds. You literally consider a line of credit that's unlimited to do whatever you want. But most people, and this is true for personal or business investment, they don't have that rigor of resourcefulness of saying, okay, what what is the constraint? So, so to me, it's the question, right? It's like, how do I get this outcome without this resource, right? How do I go buy a building without any money? How do I uh, build, how do I hire an employee without any money? So like people are like, I need somebody to help me buy back my time. It's like, great. Ask the question, how, or what's the puzzle? The puzzle is how do I get an employee without spending any money? Okay. Well, that's called an intern. Oh, I didn't think of that. I know you didn't think of that because you had already set the constraint as I need money to bring somebody into my life to buy back my time. And it's just not true, right? So it's it's that kind of stuff. I think, I think people that just decide to say like, I'm not going to use things for as an excuse and I'm just going to try to, and I, I don't know, man, for me personally, I find it fun. Like being resourceful, being creative, saying I don't have all the resources. When I built clarity.fm, I know you were on there and many other people, like Google announced their, competitor is called help outs and all my mm. investors sent me an email like hey dan did you see this what are you gonna do with that etc and i was like i actually think google's like okay yeah they have search they have billions of dollars they have the smartest people in the world but they're at a disadvantage because they have all this stuff and because they have all this stuff they don't have any clear direction they have no constraints that they have to observe and i know exactly what's happening in this company is they've got about a ton of people working on a bunch of different things and because there's a bunch of different stuff they're distracted they have no they have no focus so i actually reached out to the uh, product manager that was working on this product i went down to the googleplex and had lunch with them Dude, as soon as I sat down, I looked him in the eyes. I was like, there's no, there's zero issues for a few reasons. One, they were doing a bunch of stuff that I'd already tested. I know it's not going to work. So let them go figure that out on their own. And two, when I looked this guy in the eye, I could tell he was not going to die to solve this problem. And now that might sound intense for people. I don't give a shit, dude. I was willing to personally sacrifice everything I had in my life to solve the problem of connecting entrepreneurs with other entrepreneurs and move their dreams forward period, full stop. I would fight for that result. And I knew for a fact that that PM at Google, who's one of thousand was not going to fight for Google. He did not care about the problem to the level I cared about. And to me, when I, cause I've invested in hundreds of companies, the entrepreneur who cares about the problem that falls in love with the problem will be resourceful enough to come up with the right solution to solve the problem. And that's, Amen. that to me is why it was important for me to look at him in the eye and see, does he have it inside of him? No. 
okay, team, let's get back to work. Don't worry. Investors, we're good. Team, stay focused. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to get into some of the uh, stuff in your book. We got a few chapters here and I got some notes I want to get to you. I know I only, I only have you for about an hour. Um, before we get into that stuff, can we just answer Jerry's question over here? He says, Dan, could you briefly discuss individuals who opposed or hindered your efforts to reclaim your time and how you handle them? Yeah, it happens every day, man. Like, and, and it's subtle at my level. It's just um, people that don't think it's their job to do something, right? Like um, my whole, my, I think it's the frame. For me, what's, what's uh, important is the mental models I create, the belief systems I create to support buying back my time. So the frame right off the bat is, I don't think any of the work that somebody else does for me is less than me. I don't think it's, people call it shit work or work I don't wanna do. I don't call it that. I go, I need people in my life to support me. So because I believe that, the language that I use with my team or even my family, because sometimes it's like stuff around our house or like whatever projects I'm working on, I always go like, hey, I need your support, okay? I've got this thing, there's a puzzle. Could you help me with it? And sometimes they'll say, well, we don't have the resources to do that. I go, oh, that's fascinating. The whole resourceful thing, right? So I teach them. I said, look, and there's a bunch of different stories I can tell them to help them kind of like broaden their ability to, to be resourceful. But um, yeah, I think most people, when they're trying to buy back their time, it's, an, it's a personal area. And the big one is, and, and, and this is, I want people, I need to make sure it lands, is they don't understand that the next level for them requires them to deal with a new level of complexity. Okay. I call these problems of zero stacks, right? So when you start off, it's a $10 problem. That's a complexity ceiling. Hopefully you get past that. Cause if not, you're going to be broke for a long time. Then it's a hundred dollar problem, right? Like rich, you know, this for yourself, like there's problems that if somebody brought to your attention, you'd be like, can you please not do that? Like, this is mm -hmm. your, why are you asking me to do your job? These are little problems. I want to deal with massive problems. And I yeah. think that at every stage of growth as an entrepreneur has to learn to buy back their time. A big part of that is for them to be comfortable with the level of chaos around these factors of 10 problems. You know, yesterday I was talking to uh, a CEO, a woman, and she has like a team and an executive assistant, all these things. But one area of her life that she cannot let go of is personal finances. She has a finance team and all that stuff on the business side. But when it comes to paying personal bills, she couldn't let it go. And she has a house manager. Like this is, it's, it's fascinating. But I knew what her problem was. Her problem was that her fear of not getting a bill paid on time and that person personally looking down on her as an individual for not paying her bills, that fear was bigger than the potential reward of not doing it. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Because it yeah. was a personal, like, I don't want somebody to think I can't pay my bills or I'm not somebody that pays them on time. So for this area, cause it was so personal. And I explained to her, I said, this is cool. And I totally appreciate it, but that is your complexity ceiling. You have just demonstrated to me that in your life, your ability to buy back your time will be capped, and which means your ability to produce and serve other people will be capped based on that belief. And as soon as I correlated her ability to serve and, and create more to that belief, she's like, all right, we just got to solve it. Now, the, the thing is she knew how to solve it. Like literally once she allowed herself to release the belief, then she went to attacking the problem, which she knew how to solve because she's done it in her business. So it was just literally mm -hmm. building the same playbook inside of her personal life that she'd already done in her company. 
And, and you know, in three or four months, you're going to look back and kind of smile that it was this thing that she held on near and dear to her heart for so long that didn't have to be there. I want to um, ask you, because I mean, one of the things that I came to realize after going through your book is that I need an assistant. Um, I'm, I'm a company of one yes, guy. Yes, you do. I was like, yep. I got to do this company of one thing. I read the book, you know, a few years ago. I was like, oh yeah, this is totally me. I don't want employees. I don't want contractors. I don't want any of these obligations, any of these headaches, any of these meatballs, you know, causing me nightmares. So I went the company of one route. Now I figured out what my, um, what did you call it? The uh, estimated hourly buyback rate? rate? Buyback yeah, your rate. buyback rate. Yeah. yeah. So my buyback rate's about four grand, right? Yeah. So I clearly need to get myself you know, an assistant. So can you talk about the notion of a company of one? I'm sure you're familiar with the concept in the book. Totally. Right? Yeah. How does that, um, like, I, well, here's the thing. And I, I guess I'll, I'll tell you a story. My buddy, Mike, who you, you may know, he's from Toronto. He, he, he's let, he's given me permission to tell the story because he sent me these two messages on Facebook and, um, he read my book when it came out. Cause he's, you know, he's one of those guys kind of like us, Rich. We don't see each other often, but we're friends on social media. So like he'd watch me and he'd, he'd had put me in this like camp of hustler and aggressive and get shit done and just go, go, go and all this stuff. And he sends me this message after he reads my book and he, and he pretty much states that he goes, I read your book. And first off, I want to apologize because I thought you were this way. And now that I've read your book, I realize you believe in the same things I believe in work-life integration family, health, balance, like it's aggressive balance. Cause like at the same time I wake up at four in the morning and I get shit done. Like I'm not, mm. I'm not one that's going to sit on a beach and do nothing. Right. And, and, and he, so he, that was like message number one, 92nd or the 62nd cap on Facebook. And then it was fun because on the second one he goes, and the other thing I, I want you to know is my last company left me and I'm paraphrasing. Okay. But left me essentially emotionally, scarred where I said, I'd never want to do another company like that. So his new company has created this great life that he has and he's happy with it. It's the company of one style because it provides all the things he wants, etc. But then he says, and this was the comma, but if I truly say, I want to serve as many people as I say I do, then I've realized I'm full of crap because I could do way more if I implemented some of the stuff in your book and I'm going to go do that. And mm -hmm. I go, that's why I wrote the book. That's why the subtitle of the book is create your empire. Because first and foremost, I want to teach every entrepreneur how to create a life of unlimited creation that they never have to retire from. And that's an individualized area for every person, whatever their output creatively is. I just want them to never feel constrained based on their time what they can put out. That's why specifically in the book, I use Andy Warhol. I use Oprah. I use, but I use a ton of people to say like these very creative people, Steve Jobs, et cetera, that you guys all know, they implemented this stuff to actually live a high caliber life and create massive amount of output that served a lot of people in very unique and creative ways, right? That most people, I, I until you learn this stuff, you're like, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know the, the author wrote a bunch of books and he's been dead for 20 years because there's a whole structure on how books are written. Like, I mean, it's just fascinating mm -hmm. once you understand how some of these creative projects work. And um, so that would be my thing to you is like, I just want you to live a, a, a higher caliber of work rich where if you are doing something, it is something that is green, lights you up. And I talk about this in the book. 
and B makes that buyback rate go from four to five to six to 10,000. Right. Mm -hmm. And if those two things are true, I just can't see a world where you wouldn't want to do that. And if that requires you to, you know, and it could be a change of the vehicle that you're in the, the business vehicle so that you can get higher leverage. It could be, uh, definitely the assistant. I mean, it's just the lowest hanging fruit where you're like, Hey, there's all these things I just don't want to do anymore that have to be done. And when I get that time back, I'm going to go work on these projects that are going to give me more leverage. I mean, that's, that's the big thing. So it's, there's four master skills. Okay. Naval Ravikant talked about this uh, a long time ago. He's one of my mentors from the Valley and you know, Alex Ramosi renamed them to the four C's. Right. And I really like it. Naval called them something else, but the four C's of ma the master skills is what I call it is first one is uh, capital. We all know capital. So it's like to the degree that you can master capital, you have one of the master skills of leverage. The second master skill is content. Now content shows up in different format. Playbooks is a form. So can you create great playbooks that other people can follow to get the same results? Do you create content like this podcast? The fractional cost of 10 million people watching this versus 10 is zero. I'm pretty sure, right? Like there's no, maybe like it's on YouTube, it's hosted, whatever, no cost, huge leverage content. Third is uh, code, software, automation, and today AI, like fascinating, right? You know, AI isn't going to take your job. Somebody that's using AI is going to take your job right off the bat, period, full mm -hmm. stop. And then yeah. the fourth C is collaboration. It's the people side, it's labor. And that's what I, I, I speak heavily about in my book is how do you create the structure where as you grow, you don't hire people to grow your business, you hire people to buy back your time so that if you do it that way, it's impossible for you to actually build a life that you hate. It's impossible because you can't bring somebody onto your team unless they buy time out of your calendar, which makes your life better to go mm -hmm. do the thing that only you can do. And you do it in a way, fall on the buyback rate principle so that you don't also build what I see a lot of people do, which is build a top heavy company and then grow and make less profit. Um, talk to the viewers right now about chapters three in your book, the five time assassins and why that's important. So when I wrote the book, which I appreciate you asking that question, I um, wrote down 25 of the people that I loved the most that were entrepreneurs that I knew struggled with this concept the most, right? And as I wrote the book, I would ask myself, okay, and, and look, the, my brother was on there and my wife's on there and my best friends are on there and like, and then a bunch of other people, right? Near and dear. And I go, as it pertains to these frameworks, these concepts, and, and the book is, as, as you've seen, it's not just a time management book. It's actually a bit of leadership book. It's a strategy book. It's a vision book. It's, it's got the pieces to really do what I want people, uh, hopefully sell them on it and get them to implement and execute. And as I was going through these 25 people's names to figure out like what belief system that I need to write about and their story and tool that I need to give them, I realized that some of them didn't fit in the core frameworks I was teaching. So I created these five time assassins to kind of like bring all the other ones in there. Right. So the five, because I even tweeted this out this morning. I said, the number one thing, the cheapest thing you could do to buy back your time is just turn off all your notifications on your phone. Like oh, yeah. all of them. Like I don't have Absolutely. notifications on my phone. It's such yeah. a weird, I, like yesterday I was getting a, a, a photo, new headshot. It's been a while. Um, and the, the photographer says to me, he goes, how do you like the new ultra? Right. I, I'm a Garmin guy. I do triathlons and Ironmans and stuff. And I moved to the ultra because he got a battery life. And he asked me about it. And he says, yeah, I used to have it, but all the notifications were, were distracting me when I was doing my work. And when he said that, I was just like, 
turn them off, dude. Like that was such a fat, he, he switched watches because of notifications. And like, it's been a decade now. I just don't, because I build software. I know how great the PhD doctorates are and the engineers that build this stuff. They literally are designed to, to, oh dude, the color shade of the red notification jewel on an icon on your phone it is split tested to the nth degree. Like there's yeah. books out there and studies and PhD Hooked. research, et cetera. Yeah. Hooked yeah. by near EL and many others. Yeah. I lived in that world. Right. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the time assassins and the five of them are the staller, the speed demon, the supervisor, the saver and the self-medicator. Right. They were designed to tell people like, Hey, even if you didn't hire another person, let's just address where you're, you're losing time right? The staller is somebody that hesitates by just not making decisions. One of the most productive things you could do in your life is to be decisive. Like it sounds crazy, but people waste more time by not making a decision than a decision, right? Mm -hmm. So that was a big area. I had this bucket of friends. I was like, you guys are stallers. And then the speed demon, right? Rich, I don't know about you, but this is definitely resonates with me. You can be multiple of these. I used to be the guy that would make rapid decisions, like hiring people and partnerships and all this stuff, only to find myself dealing with the downside of those fast speed demon decisions. Because I was like, I'm making decisions in business. I'm moving forward. But I didn't even have any level of like criteria or, you know, it's the people that post on Facebook or like, I need to hire a new designer or like they, they have a friend that's like, Oh, my friend's a designer. It's like, Oh, I'll hire them. It's like, mm-hmm. are they the best person? Really? The supervisor, somebody that, that can't let go the micromanager. I think we've all been there at different stages of growth. Right. But that if you don't do that, you will always be required. The saver is the penny pincher. Right. And this one, this one bugs me a lot, Rich, because you probably, this is, this is your crowd, dude. I, I think it is anyways. And you tell me, but these are people that don't understand that if they want to move faster, they have to make investments, right? You, 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 you don't get returns on life, on your business, on an outcome you're trying to achieve if you don't make an investment of time or money, right? So like I tell this story about one of my friends, he's running a 2 million a year masterminds 20k to be in it and he calls me up because you know he hears what we're doing and he's like how did you do that and i was like well i first off because he was like frustrated that every event he would do it just felt like he was like always doing this like show like how good was the last event i was like well it's because you don't have a framework for what you're teaching it's just kind of a come and pay me to feel good about yourself but there's no like framework or process or ladder right so i introduced him this guy simon bowen who is the expert at doing this. This is like Simon is the Mozart of models. Okay. He's got a company called models that sells. And his response to me was, um, well, how much is he? And I go, I don't know how much he's going to charge you. Cause I got a bro deal. Cause I actually helped him on something, but you know, it's, it's tens of thousands. Like it's not nothing, but it's not crazy. He's like, Oh, does he have a book? I'm like, no, he doesn't have a book. He's like, all right, well, let, let me go let me go search online first and see what I can put together myself. And in that, again, I didn't say anything. Like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a weird cat because here, Rich, I will tell you how I feel, but in person, I don't because it's I like to be the lighthouse, right? That's the way mm-hmm. I resolve things. So I didn't say anything to him, but in my head, I'm thinking, how do you have a $2 million a year mastermind that you're about to shut down because you hate it, that you charge people 20 grand, that a guy that you that you reached out to me and you know we're like multiple A figures and I hired the guy to solve the problem and you're sitting there going, does, does he, he have, have a, book? a book? Yeah. Come on. No. Like, 
holy moly, I just, I, I can't deal with that stuff sometimes. And then, then the self-medicator is the person that, you know, turns to anything like food, alcohol, drugs to, to celebrate and to deal with, with stress and to check out. And usually with that comes a lot of downsides in their life that they have, I call it emotional shrapnel and it sucks a lot of time, energy, headspace, et cetera. And I seen that amongst these 25 friends where like there was about six or seven. I would say, Hey, you're a heavy self-medicator. You mm. can't win without saying we got to go celebrate at a meal or I got to go have a bunch of drinks. And I mean, dude, that's that, that will, and then you got to deal with the upset wife and then, you know, your kid's upset. And I mean, geez, the most expensive thing is, is going through a divorce. I mean, you want to talk about sucking your time and energy up. I mean, that'll be a big one. So, so to me, it's like, I had to write this chapter to address the mindset side of things before I teach the tactical, because if I didn't address that, I wouldn't have got people bought in to then say, okay, enough's enough. I want to solve these things. Mm. You've got 14 chapters in this book. I know that if we sat down, we could do this for three or four hours straight, no problem. And, and we'd completely lose track of time. I want you guys to read the book. Um, it's, it's quick. The chapters aren't long. It's, it's very similar to the way that I wrote my book. It, it's, it's just dense. It's like drinking from a fire hose and you'll get exactly what you need from it. I have a few other questions that I wanted to ask you because I only got you for another 20 minutes. Um, you talked about a house manager in your book. So, so I'm going to be a little yeah. bit selfish here because I'm working from my house and I wanted to ask you personally, how do you find a house manager? You talked about the house manager taking care of like a lot of simple tasks in your home. Um, one of the things that, uh, you know, front and center, four o'clock, I'm working. My house manager makes me a protein shake, brings it to me, hands it over. I'll be on. A, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So how do you find a house manager and how do you design that job for them? ours is called Betty and we call her Betty. Cause I think Betty's going to become an icon. Like, you know, that's uh, she's just incredible, but here's the thing. Test first hiring method. I actually chapter on how to hire because most people don't follow those processes. Okay. So the way I found her was following the process I taught in the book, which is we put a job posting up. We asked them to submit a video. They did a profile assessment. We then did a test project and Betty rose to the top. Okay. Where was Betty before she was working at an IHOP? But other people that applied were professional, um, you know, estate managers, house managers, executive assistants, et cetera. So like we had all over, but for us in our environment, she resonated. Now here's the ROI. People don't understand this because my wife was even like, um, we've had, we have several uh, people in our home over the years, like Sarah, our house. So like Betty is the CEO of my life. And some people are like, how do you find and train somebody like that? I go, did anybody train you on managing your life? No. Is it possible that other people in your city manage their own lives? Yeah. Okay, well, then they're already trained to do what you need them to do. You just need to give them the permission to do the work, right? So not only does, does Betty make sure that all the stuff is, and, and this is the thing I want people to understand, she is responsible for the outcome. She doesn't necessarily do it. Like my meal prep is done by a company. She just coordinates with my nutritionist and the meal prep and makes sure that the food's ready, right? She makes sure that she cooks it and brings it to me if I'm on meetings at lunch or whatever. Um, you know, she has a routine and a checklist. She manages all of our financials, our passports, our credit cards, anything personal, literally anything personal that either my wife or I would have to deal with, she deals with it. Now she doesn't have time because she's so busy with our stuff, our real estate, our, our, our vehicles and all this stuff. 
uh, that like even cleaning, we have Sarah that takes care of all the cleaning stuff. She has a whole crew that takes care of the, all of it. Like she's built a team around her. She's 32 years old. She's incredible. She's, um, she, she just, but I mean, we, we found that person because we know what we were looking for. Cause we built the process around it. So I, I just tell people though, like, just start simple, like literally just house cleaning, meal prep, um, you know, uh, find somebody that's the jack of all trade person that can come in and hang pictures and deal with like the repair side of stuff, yard work, like just set a, set a budget aside. I want to, I want, cause I, when people hear that, they're like a house manager, that sounds expensive and crazy. It's like, look, a increase your buyback rate. And if your buyback rate's there, then just do the time and energy audit, which I teach in the book. And if a large part of your time is taken from this, like a lot of uh, women CEOs that I, I coach, they always say like, I want more time to go to the gym. And I'm like, great, then stop making your kids lunch. And they're like, well, I could, I, but I want to know what they're eating. Mm -hmm. Write it down and ask the person to make sure that that's what's in their lunch. Mm -hmm. But I, I need to know. It's like, no, you have a belief that you show your appreciation and love to your kids by the fact that you make their meals. But then you're telling me in the same breath that you don't have time to go to the gym. So you don't have to do that stuff. You just don't understand what's more important to you. And what, what do you think your kids are going to value more? My mom being, uh, have the energy and confidence and feelings and, and stress relief by going to the gym or the fact that you made them their lunch that they didn't even see you make that is in the fridge that they just grab out of their box. Like it's that kind of stuff, Rich, that I see all the time. That's fascinating to me, but that the house manager, there's two people right? I would sell the cars and the houses before I'd ever let these people go. And it's my executive assistant and my house manager. There's no more important trade. Like, dude, if you, if, if tomorrow I woke up and poof, it was gone. I'm going to my brother's house. He already knows this because we're going to do it for each other. I'm going to go borrow like, I don't know, 250 grand. And I'm going to live off that, hire those two people. I probably don't need a house manager if I'm living on my brother's couch. But as soon as I get my own place, right? And then I'm going to build because it's, it's, there is no better ROI on my time than those two places. The problem is, Does, is most people don't know what to do with that free time. Yeah. Does the house manager live in the house in like a guest unit? Do they live close by? Like nope. how did you structure that? Yeah. She probably is six, seven minutes away. She shows up and, and we've changed it over the years. Like right now her schedule is 10 to six most days. So she's here. Uh, but I mean, again, she manages stuff. So she's like, I don't know if she's in the house or not in the house. Right. She got, mm -hmm. she got her little office in our house. Um, and yeah, she just manages stuff. Like I get, I get a, uh, my wife cares more about what she does than I do, but, um, I'll just read it to you. If you guys are curious, we have, we have like a Voxer chat. Okay. And this is yeah, like, this is, we, we just got back from travel and literally this is all the stuff that Betty did for us. Okay. So let me go there. Patio furniture sold, uh, new furniture installed windows and railings cleaned in and out. Moss removal, patio tiles, BMW X6 tires swapped out, booked out. So winter tire exchanges, uh, our dog blaze took to the groomer plain, uh, drain, drain plugged, clean filled iPhone repaired. I break phones all the time. So new iPhone, it's right there. I got two iPhones. It's just my life. Uh, old knife set sharpened, outdoor lantern returns fixed, master bedroom wall painted, mass blazes, bed blankets, wa toys washed, bird protection, community fridge, McLaren taken out of storage. Like it's literally all the stuff that people would do that I don't do. I haven't been to like a dealership or a grocery store or bought myself in a, a, like I just don't do that. 
I either spend mm. time with people I love, my family, or I create cool shit. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's all I'm going to do. And you know what's fun is I'll do both of those at the same time on my boat wake surfing. So it's mm -hmm. like, hey, I like you and you're my business partner and I want to go wake surfing. Wake surfing. Yeah. So our board meeting is on the boat. Do you get to do that a lot with Brad? I noticed you mentioned him in the book. I do it all. all I do. We do it every morning. Yeah. 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 Brad, we do every Friday. Brad's, we have Friday Brad's morning one of the best club. dudes out there, man. Dude, he's the reason all of us came here, right? Like he yeah. came first with... He Nick's came first too, with isn't or, he? Yeah, Kuzmich, literally six minutes. We just got yeah. back from Cabo. There was Herman, Todd Herman, Nick Kuzmich, my buddy Jason, and our family. We all went to the same resort and just did life together. I mean, this is nice. why like, the buyback principle to me is such an important concept is because I think the quality of life that you can live... Like Kuzmich just hired an, a house manager and it took a while, little OCD, little control freak, had to get to the place, but he did it and he shared mm -hmm. this publicly. So I'm not talking out of school. And he will say, and his wife will say the most incredible thing. Like one of my clients recently, David in, in our Facebook group, he posted, I need to share this win. I've been watching Dan, heard Dan, read the book, put it off, finally got a house manager. And she started on Monday and on Friday I came home from work. And when I drew, turned around the, came around the corner, I saw my wife in the front yard playing with our kids. Mm-hmm. It was the first time his ever saw that. When you're talking I don't know about what people the... want to hear, man. It's it's powerful. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm trust me. I, I I don't need to be sold on th that freedom. Like the amount of time that I spend, like even on car stuff. Like you know, if you have to get the car to the dealership to swap out the tires, um, shit to do with the McLaren. You know, dude, I let Betty drive my exotics. Away. Like, isn't that crazy? I, like, most people would not do that. That so might again, be it's, the thing that I'll struggle with to be like, yo, just take the car to, the, you know, take the McLaren to the dealership and whatever yep. it needs, sort of thing. Um, yeah, but I get it. I can, I can certainly see the appeal, and the list that you're reading there solves a lot of problems that would that would end up being tasks or errands in your spare time that you could really do with fun shit, you know, with your kids or family or whatever. Um, you were talking about a assistant and I saw you mention somewhere on your, so if you go to Dan's um, book site, buy back your time, then you can opt into his email list and you'll get the webinar and the worksheet. So I, I was looking at that before I hopped on this call with you and you mentioned delegated.com. Um, is that the place where you got your assistant from? No, I'm just, I own that company. <laughs> so okay. I own a lot of companies that a lot of people don't know about, but yeah, delegate.com I bought uh, five years ago, just cause again, people would ask me, where'd you find your assistant? Where'd you find your assistant? So mm -hmm. essentially, um, that is an, a tool, but here's how little I care about. I, I just want people to find the person for them. Like Rich, mm -hmm. you're at a level, dude, you should have somebody if you need them. And this is where it all depends. Cause an assistant can be called a runner. It can be all the executive assistant can be called the chief of staff. It all depends on your situation. That's why the time and energy audit is so important because it'll tell you what you're dealing with and then who the right hire is. Right. So like for my buddy, Matt Bertulli, who, you know, his mm -hmm. executive assistant lives locally because she also acts as his PA, his personal assistant. Okay. okay. So she does work stuff and she does personal stuff because that's what he needed. Right. But because I have both and I have so much volume in just the executive corporate stuff and on our, my personal stuff with my wife, cause we're both entrepreneurs. So she helps with my wife's stuff. Like, and then she reports, it's just, it's what you need. So I don't like you, if people want to go try it out and start with delegate.com for sure. Cause it's fractional. Mm -hmm. It's by the hour. They know my playbooks, they can implement it. And then over time go like, Oh, I need somebody more dedicated and focused and full time. 
then they can swap that out as well. Got it. Um, what do we got? About nine minutes left. So last question for you. Um, I think that my audience would like to get some feedback from you on personal stuff. Um, one of the things that I spend a lot of time talking about on my channel and even in my book is intersexual relationships. Uh, you've been married for a long time. Um, what would you, is there any one thing, are there things that you would identify as success mechanisms that has allowed that to work out for you? Um, another, actually, let me ask you this question first. When you hear the soundbite, happy wife, happy life, what comes to mind first of all? Oh, it's stupid. It's the dumbest thing in the world. It's the okay. I'll tell you why it's the dumbest thing in the world. Build on that, yeah. Other people's happiness does not make you happy. Like everybody else's happiness is their responsibility and your responsibility mm -hmm. is to be happy. Like How the did world you doesn't get easier. Oh, just, th just through the, the, the auditing of the narrative of the stories in my head, you know, it's mm -hmm. just like realizing that people respond to different things that were completely different than mine that had nothing to do with the actual facts or circumstances. It had to do with their personal reality inside of their brain, their hallucinations about how the world's supposed to be. So it's like, the more you unpack that, you realize like, oh, other people's happiness include, dude, I tell my kids daily, your emotional health is not my responsibility. I'm here to support you. I'm here to work with you, but you are responsible for your mental health. Like, that's how much I believe that my job, you know, my life isn't going to be dependent on. And like, if my kids are entrepreneurs or complete failures, it does not personally, it's not going to be a reflection on me as a father. I knew I showed up and I did the work and my intentions were there and the activities were there. How somebody else responds to that, that's on them. And I think the moment you can disconnect that, you live a completely different life where my wife's happiness is not going to, it doesn't make me happy. Now, do I want to become the person who can support people around me in their journey? Hell yeah, man. Like this is, this is the part where, you know, I shared this recently where my dad, you know, we've always had an, like a really cool relationship. I went through chaos and hell with him as a teenager. And then he actually moved parts of town for me to, to get sober and stay sober. And he bought all these computer books for me. And he's just, he's my hero. But there's always like this awkwardness. Like he, it's like he never, and for all the boys, you know, two, two other brothers, he never did any one-on-one -on -one stuff, which sounds crazy to some people, but we just thought it was normal. Mm -hmm. And about a year and a half ago, he finally said yes to come and spend time one-on-one -on -one with just me for two days. Mm -hmm. And, and then in that moment, time together, I would ask him, you know, do you want to work out? Do you want to come to it? Oh, no, no, I don't want to slow you down, blah, blah, blah. And then I got in a major snow biking accident with Brad. I fell off a 25 foot cliff and took my handlebars and my, my femur. And so I was injured. So I asked my dad, do you want to come to the gym? We were in Nashville at one of my events he came to. And he goes, okay, young buck, since you're injured, you know, and my dad worked out with me every day for four days in a row, every morning. And that was the first time I'm 43, dude. He said no to me for 20 years. And I share this because I wanted to, if I didn't become the person who could show up and be consistent and create the space and be willing to ask and never turn that off, I would have never been at a place where now he said yes. And I just think like other people's happiness is their responsibility, but in the same breath, my responsibility is to become the best version of myself. So I am prepared to support them when they're ready for me. Like my, my, my family, my mom still struggles with different things. 
And I feel like my whole family has written my mom off. She's seven years old and they've written her off. She sleeps with a sleep apnea machine. She's very unhealthy. She can't even walk upstairs. And I still hold the belief that she could absolutely transform her life. And until she takes her last breath, there will never be a moment of belief where I don't believe that. Because mm. I just know I've seen it happen thousands of times for people. doesn't matter what stage of their life, young or old, in a moment, things can absolutely change and you can see miracles happen. But if I'm not in a position when she's ready to make that decision to support her because I didn't do the work, then that I think would be the biggest fallacy. So it's not my responsibility if my wife's happy, but it's my responsibility to become the person that does the work, the trauma, the the, you know, all that stuff that have the financial resources do. We have a family coach. We fly her in from California to come live with us and, and look at how we interact and give us feedback. That's not inexpensive. I get it's a luxury, but mm -hmm. I also realize that's why I get up and do what I do is so that whatever I need, if, if, if I get a call that my kid's sick and there's a $2 million operation that is done in Guatemala and I can't pay for that, I don't want to, I don't want to, I can't even imagine what that would feel like. What is a, so uh, there, there's, there's a family parts coach. What does a family coach do? Like, what was the big aha moment for you with that? Oh, there's so much. I mean, think about this, Rich. There's the story you tell people that happened, and then there's what really happened. So, mm -hmm. so having her live, wake up in the morning, watch us interact, see the moments, see the this, take us individually, do some one-on-one, -on -one, take the boys one-on-one, -on -one, ask them questions, probe, integrate those learnings, come to dinner with us. Like, the whole shebang um, was just really valuable. The, the biggest one I'll share with people that it sounds subtle, but really changed the way, like literally on a daily basis, we change our behavior was called takeoffs and landings. Mm -hmm. Meaning that when I leave, I used to just go. It's like this morning I had a, uh, run with my buddy, Rich in the past. I would just leave. I would just go at seven in the morning. I'm meeting my buddy. I'm going to go for a run. I'll come home now because of learning this. When I go to leave, I go find my wife. I give her a big hug. I tell her, I love you, babes. I'm heading out for a run with Rich. I'll be back at eight. That subtle thing means so much to her. And to me, when I come home, it feels great because there's a landing that everybody goes, hey, what did you do? How are you doing? Right? Versus mm -hmm. just staying busy doing their thing. I mean, it sounds so subtle, but it's like these little tweaks that can have such a beautiful impact. Um, and that's just the, the small stuff. She did so much other things as well. But we've been working with her for like five years. I mean, and I have an emotional coach for my kids. I mean, I'm just a big fan of investing in the world's best to teach us the skills that I think are force multipliers for huge impact on our lives. Sounds like it's working for you. So last question, you've got two minutes. You're giving your son's advice. They're going off into the world. They're men now. What advice do you give them? Mm. That's a great question. Cause I, I mean, I've thought about this, so I've given them a lot of it. Like, I mean, I always believe that all kids are homeschooled, whether the parents know it or not, because most school is just government assisted daycare. Um, mm -hmm. I would say it's, it's, I would, I would encourage them to just be them a thousand percent. Cause like that, that's the, and, and what I mean by that is that there is nothing more unique in this world than somebody that owns their truth about what they like, what they enjoy, what they want to do with their time and how they want to create value for others than people that just allow themselves to live that life. Right. It's, it's when you meet these people, it's why they're, they're inspiring. And I'm not surprised that those people are also the ones that have the biggest following online, the biggest businesses, et cetera, because they attract people that admire that because most people do not walk away around the world this way. So I would just hope that if I would try to say it in a way that would really land, but the whole idea of just like 
do it for you. Don't do it for dad. Don't do it for mom. Don't do it for your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whatever. Like do it for you. And Mm -hmm. because from that place, it's, it's, is it authentically you? And is it a place of service? I think those are two things that have to be true. Those two things are true. You can't live an unfulfilled life. And I don't, I don't wish they're happy. I wish that they're fulfilled. All right. Guys, check out uh, Dan's book. It's available on Amazon. The Audible's read by him, so it's a great listen. It's my favorite way to consume books. Uh, your bonus website, Dan Martell. Yeah, uh, there's yeah. bonus material. Yeah, um, danmartell.com is a website, I think. Yeah, and buybackyourtime.com, and I'm very active on Instagram. So if you guys want to message me, let me know what resonated the most. I'd mean it'd mean the world to me. And then if you read the book, leave a review on Amazon. That's how we create the movement and the flywheel moving. And uh, I'm uh, I'm really grateful for the opportunity, Rich thousand percent so the links are pinned in the description below guys have an awesome day dan thanks for joining me brother